as we continue to talk about the grace of, uh, of the Lord and how it can be a help to us as we live our everyday life. Uh, we know the early church was characterized by the presence of God's Spirit and God's grace. Uh, we see tonight uh, a, a term here that's found only once in the Bible. I want to show it to you in a minute as we read. And uh, we see this grace in their relationships, in their witness. And I really believe the reason the church does not have the impact in the world today like it did then is that we lack the grace we read about in this passage. So I want to look at it, if you would. We're going to look at three areas in which God gave his blessing of grace here. Gracious spirits, generous stewardship, and great soul winning. Look in uh, Acts 4, verse 32 is where we're going to start at. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's that term, great grace. Only time in the Bible those two words are put together like that. I think it's, it's interesting. And we're going to look tonight at the great grace that they had and how it was manifested. Verse 34, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according to as he had need. And Joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted, the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to talk tonight about a rewarding grace. Father, thank you for the time we have this evening. We thank you for the safety and and traveling, uh, my daughter coming back from school, and us traveling, and others as well, uh, protecting Will this week. And it's just a blessing to, as we come together tonight, that we're able to just reflect on a previous week of you having your hand over us. And we pray tonight as we look at this area of grace, uh, help us to see how it can be a help, how we can manifest it in our lives, and uh, the rewards that come from it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps no other church in history, other than the one we're reading about tonight, experience the grace of God, the presence of God, the power of God to the extent that the Jerusalem church did. It's an amazing model as as we read through. And I've said often, we uh, we use the Bible both for instruction and example. And much of how we do things in our church today, uh, even, even today, comes from all the way back in the early church, in the Jerusalem church specifically. But though that day that 3,000 people were saved and added to the church, baptized and added to the church, in one day, the day of Pentecost, uh, when Peter preached, Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine 3,000? Do we have a motion? Do we have a second? Uh, 3,000 times, maybe they didn't do it that way then, but a lot of people added to the church in that one day. Our text here describes the church as having great grace. Verse 33 we just read. Here was the kind of spirit that God had in mind for his church. I don't believe that has changed, by the way. I think he still has it in mind for his church today. Here's the kind of oneness that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. 
I'll read that verse in a little bit. It existed, though, only for a short time. It didn't last long uh, because uh, the visible church that we have here, the church that started uh, in, in, here in Jerusalem, uh, it is, was not exempt from the law of decline. Everything that we have uh, that exists today, if you look back at great organizations, in fact, we were just talking about it today. You know, at one time, the Salvation Army was a rock-solid, soul-winning organization. Isn't so anymore. Uh, I mean, it does, still does good things, but it isn't what it used to be. And we could go, you know, Yale and Princeton were Bible colleges when they started out. Uh, these, these things are, are all subject to the law of decline. Guess what? Our church is subject to the law of decline. Now, I hope that if the Lord tarries in 50 years, the gospel will still be preached. What are you talking about? I'll be preaching the gospel still in 50 years, hopefully. Uh, but uh, it will still be uh, going forward. But, but everything is, is subject to that. Because we're humans, we're people, we're imperfect. And things tend to move uh, sometimes the wrong direction. I can look at universities and colleges today uh, that have went way away from where they used to be uh, back in when they first began. But the same thing happened at this church here. Soon divisions would come. Jealousies would divide the people. False doctrines would come and be uh, separating to those within the church. Never again would the church be as united as they were in the text we just read. It's all, all downhill from there. Uh, we see that in our church even right here. In any Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. You see periods of unity and periods where everybody, you know, the Spirit's good, and then you see uh, conflict. It's just because there's people in it, right? As long as there's people in it. You know, if there were none of you here, we would get along good, me, myself, and I. But there's people here. And so, because there's people, there's going to be conflict. It's just the fact of a matter, because we're imperfect and sinful. And so, never again would the church be so unanimously united in heart and soul but for this moment, uh, the church was one. As a result, they had great grace. Now, we can have grace. Uh, we're supposed to have grace. We've been talking about grace for about eight weeks now. And we need to, t uh, to do everything we can to allow God's grace to work through our life. We need to be gracious as Jesus was. However, uh, the, the, uh, the great grace that this church had uh, can only be seen when you have the type of unity in the heart that they had here. Now, the grace of God uh, bestowed on these early Christians affected every part of their life. The way they interacted with each other, we saw that in our text. The way they gave, we saw that in our text. The way they witnessed, we saw that as well. They were all dramatically impacted by the presence of God's grace. And as if we've been trying to hammer home, grace is not a hypothetical concept. Grace is a practical application that we need to live in our everyday life. It's a life-changing gift from God. Grace outwardly evidences God's Spirit in your life so that others can see that grace in you. God gives us grace, we give grace to others. And I've, as I've been saying all along, how sad it is that we can't be gracious after God has so, been so gracious with us. So let's start here. First, we see they were gracious in their spirit. Now, grace is God's inward work. So first, it renews our spirits, and then it manifests in our actions. A unified spirit, we see this clearly in the Jerusalem church. Look, they were just like we are because they had people like we have people. There would be things that went wrong there. They would have conflict. 
but they managed to maintain harmony within the church. Now, we do know two things, that unity is not manufactured. This type of unity is not manufactured. We cannot make it happen. Oh, people try to do that. They try to manufacture it on their own by making demands or making stringent rules and having everybody do and act the same way. But you cannot manufacture the type of unity they had here in Acts chapter 4. Uh, this unity also, secondly, does not just happen. Uh, it, it would be nice, but it doesn't. Uh, it is produced by grace. Notice a few things here. They were, one, uh, they were of one faith. The leaders of the church, the apostles, had spent years with Jesus Christ, three years learning from him. Uh, these people came from all walks of life. They came from different places. But one thing uh, brought them together. They had the same faith. They had faith in Christ. If you jump back up uh, to verse number 10 here of chapter 4, uh, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The members of that church had a common belief, a common faith, centered around the person of Christ. You know that song in our hymnal, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. There is a level of unity that can exist only among believers. It goes beyond just the idea of getting along. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have something in common that's more important than anything that could divide us. Can I say that again? We have something in common, the Holy Spirit living within, that is more important than what can divide us. Now, we don't always act that way, but that's the, uh, the fact of the matter if we have our focus right. They had faith in Christ. They also had fellowship in Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, the only true basis for true fellowship is doctrine. Many churches today will ignore doctrine in order to advance fellowship. Uh, if we do not have the same beliefs, then it's not a fellowship, it's a gathering. You can gather with people, but you have to agree in the beliefs of the gospel and the beliefs of our doctrine for it to be fellowship. And, but there is a departure from doctrinal preaching today in many churches. There's a departure from traditional church practice. Uh, then, then, then things start to disappear, like uh, something that's important and, and it's going away from lots of churches today is the altar call. I think the altar call is an important thing. And I think it's a, there's a purpose behind it. But yet, uh, then I ask myself, why have an altar call? If you're not preaching the gospel, if you're not preaching against sin, why have an altar call anyway? What's it for at that point? And so uh, we need to hold these things as important. They were of one heart. The word heart here, when it says they were of one heart, refers to the feelings and emotions. The church in Jerusalem had a unity because they shared a love for Christ. Their hearts were focused on the same great love for Christ, and this bound them together. Precisely because they took their eyes off themselves and put it on Christ, was their focus aligned and they could have unity. Uh, this is the only way that we will have that type of unity, that type of commonality, that type of oneness, if our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a story my dad, uh, whenever we were out 
uh, several times he shared this story with me, but if you've ever seen a, a field of freshly fallen snow, and uh, when we were young, we used to try to, uh, you know, we'd, we'd make paths in it and we'd make straight lines. Well, there's that illustration of uh, a father and his son. They were walking across a field, and the dad said, let's see who can make the straightest line in the snow with our path. And so when we get the other side, we'll look back and see who has the straightest line. You've probably heard this before, but both of them walk. The boy is very carefully putting his feet in front of the other. He's trying to go as straight as he possibly can. But they get to the other side of the field. They look back. Dad's line is straight as an arrow. The sun is kind of all over the place. And he couldn't understand it, as careful as he had been. And, of course, Dad explained to him, while you were looking down at your steps, I was looking, focusing on a fence post, and I walked directly toward it, and keeping that in my sight helped me keep my line straight, where you were focusing on your steps, and you went all over the place. Well, that's the, that's the key to the oneness that we have. Our focus has to be on a common goal. Our focus has to be on Jesus Christ, which theirs was, and they had that one heart. They were one in Christ. Jesus prayed that his people would experience the same unity that he had with his Father. John 17, 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those which thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. There is the heart of our Savior. He wants us to be one, as he and his Father were. But, I will say this is a big caveat. Unity is not the goal at any cost. There has to be doctrine and then unity within that. Spurgeon said, unity without truth is hazardous, and very well it is. Real unity is produced as a byproduct of a shared commitment to the truth. So as each and every one of us seek out the truth and we have the same doctrine, the belief in the Word of God, then that will bring about Unity as a byproduct, not as an end goal. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, brother, my friend Wes Pigor and I, one of our deacons here, we, we most of the time get along, right? Most of the time. And, uh, but our unity as, as, as Christians does not come because we have sat down and hammered out all of our little beliefs. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And if we come to a disagreement... Uh, argue until we see it one way and then go on. That's not how, where that unity comes from. The unity that we have is because I uh, tried to have myself aligned with Christ. He has himself aligned to Christ. And then it's like tuning pianos. If you tune, you don't tune pianos to each other. You tune them to the same tuning fork and then they're perfectly tuned to each other as well uh, because of who, what they are tuned to, to a standard. And so that's the type of unity that I'm talking about. The church unity, the church, this church, I should say, had unity based on their shared fellowship with Christ and the teaching that they received from the apostles or the doctrine that they held on to. Now, today, according to ecumenicism and uh, the, the more liberal churches, unity is what it is all about. We put things aside. In fact, as uh, a singer a few years ago, few years ago, I was in college when this, when this song used to play on Christian radio, uh, Tear Down the Walls. Uh, that's what they are all about. Tear down these walls of separation and, and all these different things that separate us. Tear down those walls. Years ago, I went to an interdenominational men's meeting. I don't know why, but somebody dragged me to one of those. And I remember the, the speaker, there's a lot of men there, and the speaker said, now, 
I'm going to say one, two, three, and everybody give me their denomination. And uh, so one, two, three, and it was pandemonium. You know, so everybody said something different. Every, all kinds of different types of people there. And then he said, now one, two, three, say the name Jesus. And so he said, one, two, three, Jesus. Now do you see, uh, there's confusion in denomination, but there is unity in Jesus. No, that's not it at all. An unsaved person can say Jesus. Anybody can just yell out. But, but the, these separations, now denomination is not going to take you to heaven. Denomination is not going to save you. But it is important what we believe. The things that we hold to as Baptists, that is important. Those things are valuable. And so you don't just throw that out so that we can all have a big kumbaya moment of unity. That's not what uh, this is promoting at all. And so we have to understand that that doctrine is important. In Titus chapter 1, we have the qualifications of a pastor. In verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able to sound, to, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So a pastor is to be ready to give instruction in sound doctrine and to be ready to rebuke those that contradict it. Now, does this rebuke mean that sometimes it will cost in our unity? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, yes, sometimes if you speak the truth, and uh, even if you speak the truth in love, um, old evangelist years and years ago used to come to our church and preach. I think he's in heaven now, but his name was Herbert Hoover. Not the president, but the evangelist. But he used to always say, uh, you, he, he would preach a hard point, but he always had a, he had a gap tooth, and he always had a big smile. He used to say, you can say anything if you say it with a smile. And uh, you, you can, people can still get offended. Unity can still be, if you look at it that way, broken up. But let me read a point here that Spurgeon, or a quote by Spurgeon. On all hands, we hear cries for unity in this and unity in that. But in our mind, the main need of this age is not compromise, but conscientiousness. First pure, then peaceable. A union that is not based on the truth of God is rather a conspiracy than a communion. Charity by all means, but honesty also. Love, of course, but love to God as well as love to men, and love of truth as well as love of union. Now, I, I say that because I believe in today's society, in our church society today, uh, in, in, in not in Bible Baptist, but in our churches across America today, I think it's all out of whack here. People are looking to be unified, and they will knock down any walls of doctrine to get to that unity. I like to get along with people as much as the next guy, but doctrine is important, and that is made clear in the early church here. Our unity... Our fellowship should be based in doctrine. We seek unity, but not at the cost of doctrine. They were not only one in Christ, but one for Christ. Uh, they, people from different nations had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Many of them remained during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, awaiting for the day of Pentecost. And on that day they heard Peter preach, and 3,000 people were saved. Every nation, the Bible says, heard these men preach... And in Acts 2.11, we heard them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They spoke in tongues that day uh, without knowing it. They preached and everybody heard in their language. Can I tell you that tongues in the Bible 
The miracle of tongues is most often in the hearing, not in the speaking. We're not talking about the jibber-jabber that they do today in Pentecostal churches. That's not the tongues of the Bible. Uh, the, the miracle of tongues in the Bible was in the hearing, and as we see here in Acts chapter 2. So, they were from different backgrounds, languages, customs, cultures, but they were united in a common cause for Christ. Racial division, prejudice, I'm sorry, we've seen it. It cannot be repaired by social programs. We, they've tried, certainly. Uh, things can sometimes be improved a little bit, but it cannot be repaired. The love of God begins the healing that is needed in the hearts of people who've been saved. When people are drawn to the gospel, when they trust Christ as Savior, then they find a purpose that draws them together no matter how they differ. <clears throat> now we've went into this in our series in Acts on Sunday night, but Peter and James, uh, not Peter and James, I'm saying Paul and James. You probably couldn't find two more different people than Paul and James. They were different in their personality. They were different in their execution. They were different in their preaching. They were just different. And yet they were united in this common cause. Then the Bible says they were of one soul. Uh, these early Christians united by the love of Christ, they, uh, this created in them a desire to serve Him. This desire brought them together, and they formed a body where each person used their own personal strengths to do God's work. That's the church. Every one of us applies our strengths, whatever that might be, to do God's work. And that's the way you have a unified force going forward. There are things that I feel I can do pretty well in our church, and then there's some things that I would be horrible at. And then there's things that you do well, then you might not be so good in other areas. you know. And so find your niche. Find an area in which you can serve and uh, get involved that way. Uh, we want to be used uh, in the church body. There's an example in the Old Testament of this type of friendship between David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan were an example of very different personalities, different backgrounds, different raisings, different families, and yet they were knit in their soul. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, 1, and it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There is, uh, that, that's, that's a rare thing, as we know, but there's no unity apart from the grace of God, really, when it comes right down to it. If we're going to have true Christian Bible unity, that's going to come through the grace of God. We need a revival of graciousness among Christians today. We have had, you know, what, what is in society? It just can't help but come into the church. It just does because we live in the world that we live in today. And in this self-promoting world that we live in today, that's, that creeps into the church. And we need to be careful that we have a graciousness uh, the way that Christ had for us. Churches today many times suffer from dumb divisions. Hymn books or carpets uh, or uh, paint. You know, dumb, silly stuff that's not going to matter at all in eternity. And with God's grace, we set those things aside and uh, we focus on the work that needs to be done. Again, this isn't uh, done at any price. I'm not talking about doctrinal things. I'm talking about things that don't matter. And yet, most, by and large, 
I don't know a percentage, but I'd say it's probably in the 90s, percentage of church problems aren't about doctrine after all. They're about dumb stuff most of the time. Church issues, conflicts are often about dumb stuff, and we just need to not be distracted by that. There, this is a true statistic. More people leave the church because they die than people that leave for doctrinal reasons. And uh, we need to make sure that we are most, we, we don't get worked up about things that don't matter and stay focused on what does. Then, secondly, they were generous in their stewardship. Generosity is not a natural human trait. We tend to be selfish, trying to get all that we can and can all that we get. Hold on to it. Uh, we, we are not by nature usually generous. But the members here of the Jerusalem church did not look at their possessions as something to be held on tightly. In fact, they didn't even regard their possessions as their own. If you look here, they, they basically did, a, they, they look at verse 32, they believed that were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. What's mine is yours was their attitude in that day. Now, the believers here were very unselfish. They had the attitude, if I can help you with anything that I have, it's yours. This type of generosity, again, it's not normal. It's not natural. Because naturally we're selfish. But what it was a result of is great grace that they had and that prevailed in the church. In fact, in the New Testament, giving is called a grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is referring to the financial gift that they gave. And in verse 7 he says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence, and in your love to us, See that ye abound in this grace also. The grace, what was he talking about? Of the gift of giving. Old Testament giving was bound by a percentage of income. New Testament giving is uh, proportionate to what God has given us. Uh, when we as Christians yield to the Holy Spirit's leading, we're going to allow Him to direct in our giving. And a real, true, Holy Spirit-filled Christian is going to live more open-handed than he is closed-fisted. We're going to be generous with what we have. A church that has great grace never has puny giving. Because grace, great grace is going to be, uh, lead to generosity as we see here. Giving is a heart matter. Giving is not about what you can afford or what you can't afford. Giving is a matter of the heart. And that's why it's uh, so geniusly set up by the Lord to be proportional. And uh, God can do a lot with a little. We just need to be faithful on our part. Give what we can. I, I heard read where a politician asked a preacher, name something the government can do to help the church. And the preacher replied quickly, quit making $1 bills. Amen. That would help the church out. Think about that for just a little bit. Offering plate, you know. All right. Uh, the believers were sacrificial. The giving in the church at Jerusalem was a response to the needs around them. Now, we read this verse, verse 32, and I'm a red-blooded American through and through, 100%. I'm a capitalist, amen? I believe it uh, with all my soul. So we read this, and what do we see? What, what's the first word that comes into your mind when we read that verse, verse 32? Somebody tell me. Somebody tell me. Don't be scared. What's the first word that comes to your mind? Communism. Yeah, you read that. 
That's not, that's not what we believe. That's communism. This is not connected to the government. Okay, this was in a church. By the way, no place in the New Testament does it instruct us to live this way. This is just what they did here. They were so in tune and unified with one another, they pooled everything, and, they, and, and it worked for them here at this time. At no place are we instructed to live this way or expected to. That's not the point. The point is here that we see a principle that we should be willing to help those less fortunate than us. We should be willing to be uh, a blessing to others because everything that we have is of God. Now, if you'll see in verse 32, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. Friend, that's still true. What you have is not your own. God could take it like that in a split second. It doesn't matter if it's money, if it's possessions, if it's a house, if it's health. It doesn't matter. It could be gone by tomorrow morning. So we better recognize that what we think we have, it's not really our own. And we need to not live like it is our own. It's God's. Everything's God's. And if we live like that, uh, we could be uh, more of the mindset to be the generosity that they had here. So they were sacrificial. And then finally, in closing here, they were great in their soul winning. The church, again, had great grace. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, they never went anywhere without telling somebody about Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, read uh, verse 33, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And uh, they were being a witness to those around them. It's good for us to have a general uh, soul winning time. I think every church ought to have a time that we go out uh, soul winning visitation, but that doesn't mean that it's only in those hours. Really, the best soul winner is not one who goes one hour a week on Tuesday night. The best soul winner is the one that has his eyes peeled all the time for somebody that needs a gospel tract or somebody that you can talk to about their soul. And so uh, the, this is the attitude that they had. They had po a powerful witness, it says, and with great power gave the apostles witness. Where did they get that power? Well, they got it. It's talked about in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And this is where they got their power. This is where we get our power. Amen? Not from our own abilities. Churches today are changing their methods of soul winning uh, because they don't see the results that they want to see. A couple of points on this. I get asked uh, almost every time I go to a pastor's conference or pastor's meeting somewhere, uh, the, you hear the question come up about, do you still go door knocking? You know, do you still, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you do that? And uh, you know, the, our, our area is not really open or friendly towards door knocking. I've never been in an area that's happy with door knocking, honestly. There's, I've never yet, and I've went soul winning in door, to, door to door, Missouri, North Carolina, Michigan, Canada on a, youth, or on a missions trip one time, uh, Mexico, uh, and then here in South Dakota, and nowhere have I ever uh, knocked on a door and they, yay, you're here. No, that's not usually how it is. Uh, it's, not, it, it's not that we're trying to be rude or anything, but let's not think that a lost and dying world is going to thank us for witnessing to them. It's never going to be easy. We need to do it anyway. Uh, the problem is not the method, and so let's not start changing the method of what's worked or what, Christ, or what the Bible sets in place. The method Jesus gave the disciples is just as effective today as it was then if we do it 
in the power of the Holy Spirit like they did. The key is in the power. By the way, we don't do what we do purely for results anyway. Because it's easy for me to do that. Being in business for a number of years, uh, everything was results-oriented. And if you, did, if you did X and it didn't result in Y, then you changed X until you got Y. You just cha- you changed different things and moved things around. It's a little different in ministry because I really believe that if we are faithful in doing what we need to do, God brings the increase. We water, we plant, God brings the increase. And I've seen it work in churches I've been involved in. I've seen it work here. If we're just faithful, we can go out and uh, it, to this day, six years, I've been in many doors here in Brookings. I don't know how many. I've got a map that shows all the streets we've done since uh, we started here. But uh, I I don't know how many doors, but many doors. I've yet to lead one person to Christ on their doorstep. To my knowledge, I don't think one person or one family has come because I knocked on their door. So how do we then look at that and say, well, it's failing? We are, obviously, that's not working. So we don't do that anymore. I don't believe that because while we do that and the people that we directly speak to don't come, we got others walking through the door all the time. And I really believe if we're faithful in doing our part, God will be faithful to bring the people in. By the way, let me ask you a question. Do you want someone in this church that I brought or do you want someone in this church that God brought? I've seen that before too. And so let's just trust Him for the increase. We just are faithful in getting the gospel and the witness out. This is what happened here. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection. There was power in their message. Uh, the, and I'm going to kind of wrap it up here, but it was proven by the resurrection. Uh, it was also proven by changed lives here that we see in this passage. The grace of God transforms those who believe. And the world has no explanation for it. They try. Oh, it's a crutch or whatever reason they give. But they really have no explanation for the changed life. Last week, I got a call from a man in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Just a cold call. Never talked to him before. And uh, just called on our church phone. Got the number off our website. And he told me he wanted to give me his testimony. He said that he had been, uh, has went through some really tough times in his life. Had suffered from alcoholism and different things. And, and he found our messages online and he started listening to our the, the preaching messages that we put online so this is in pennsylvania and uh unconnected he doesn't know anybody i know i don't know anybody he knows just just found us online and then he said i, I came across he said you have a pastor forseberg no he didn't say that i think he said it right but he said uh he he preached a series a couple years ago on alcohol remember that i don't know if you remember he did a sunday night series on alcohol and he said, that changed my life. I'm no longer an alcoholic. He's accepted Christ as Savior. And it's changed his life. He said, I went to AA. I went to all kinds of different programs. They didn't work uh, until he got connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. The world can't explain that. They, can't, they, they, can, they can scoff at all they want to. But they have no explanation for that. And I am simply saying, uh, that, by the way, that was a... That was his case with Lazarus' testimony in the Bible, too. Uh, can you imagine, you know those story uppers when you're telling a testimony and somebody else has got a better one? Nobody beat Lazarus out. Yeah, I was dead uh, for four days. And, uh, you know, yeah, you know, the Lord saved me out of drunkenness. I was dead. 
So there is that. And, and I was raised from the dead. They ain't going to explain that. The, the world can't explain a changed life. And so share that with people. There's power in that. The power of a changed life. That, that was the two things given here. They gave witness to the resurrection, and then it also shows their changed life here. Uh, the, your own story. Your story is evidence of God's grace in your life. So don't be afraid to share that with others. If you notice throughout the Bible, in Paul's writings, he often tells about his testimony of what happened on the road to Damascus. He repeated the story not because he didn't have anything else to say. He repeated the story because his conversion could not be explained other than through the power of the grace of God. And yours can't either. You might not have been a reformed bank robber or a drug dealer or any big, great, awful, horrible sin. But your life cannot be explained without the grace of God, what He's done. And so let's use that uh, as they did with great power they gave witness. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for allowing us uh, to live in the shadow of that grace, Lord, and help us to show it to others as well. Help us to be, have this revival uh, of graciousness that is so desperately needed in our midst today. Help us, Father, to make an impact in those around us by showing them what you've done for us and then showering that grace to others as well. We pray in Jesus' name.